uh, I would like to invite Sister Rosalyn upstairs to come and read the Word of God for the church. Our sermon today will be taken from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. Last week we studied the first half, verses 11 to 15. Now we will focus on the second half, which is 11 to 21. This is the word of God. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Ross. All right, guys. Uh, well, today we're going to continue in our sermon series in the book of Galatians. And as we've seen that the, Galatian, or the book of Galatians is a letter that Paul wrote to a group of churches in a region called Galatia. And we studied in the first, <clears throat> the first chapter and two that these churches were planted by Paul himself. And they started off well. They received the gospel of Christ. They were growing in obedience in the gospel of Christ. They were obeying God, <clears throat> not motivated by fear, not motivated by self-righteousness or pride, but their obedience was motivated because they realized what Christ has done for them on the cross, that Jesus has already saved them on the cross, that Jesus has already made them righteous on the cross, and that's why they now love and serve and obey him. But at one point, we saw in Galatians chapter 1 that there's a group that came into this region called Galatia, and they confused these Christians. They confused these churches. We see later in chapter 2 that these, this group was called the circumcision group. Okay, this is a group that preached a false gospel that says you're not saved by Christ. No, you're not saved by grace. You're saved by your own personal obedience to the law. And Paul calls this a false gospel. And last week we gave a name to this false gospel. We called it hard legalism. Okay, 
thinking that we are saved by our obedience to the legalistic requirements of the Old Testament law. Hard legalism. And then Paul spent the whole uh, first chapter arguing against legalism, but now in our passage today, we see Paul telling us a story, telling the Galatian church a story, about Paul's argument with another group of people. Not the circumcision group, but the apostle Peter himself, along with the other Jewish Christians who were swayed by similar heresy that the circumcision group had, but not the same exact one. What they're saying, what the Jewish Christian group is saying is this. They're not promoting hard legalism. They're not saying that you're saved by obeying the Old Testament laws. But what they're saying is this. Yes, okay, you're saved by the grace of Christ. You're saved by faith in what Christ has done on the cross. But you can kind of earn more righteousness. You can kind of climb the spiritual ladder. You can kind of become first-class Christians the more obedient you are after you've been saved. Now, see, there's a difference. It's not hard legalism. It's, it's soft legalism. You're still saved by Christ, but you can somehow earn your own righteousness, become more lovable by God, more valuable through God, in God, the more you're obedient. And we saw last week how this soft legalism caused a lot of the Jewish Christians to put unnecessary burdens on non-Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, right? And he's saying that unless, unless you're as obedient as we are, unless you obey as many laws that we do, you're not as good as us. You're second-rate, lesser Christians. And for you to hang out with us, for you to have gospel fellowship with us, you have to obey all the laws that we're obeying, right? That's soft legalism. Paul says to both, hard and soft legalism, no such thing. You're saved by grace through Christ alone, and you do not need to earn your own righteousness after you are being you have been saved. Last week, we studied the first half of the passage, verses 11 to 14, and this week, we're going to study the second half, how Paul continues to combat soft legalism. And his hope is that the Christians in Galatia will repent from this soft legalism and reclaim the freedom in the gospel that Christ has given them. And our hope as we study this passage today is that the Spirit would minister to our hearts and convince us of our tendencies of soft legalism and hopefully free us from the burdens that it has unnecessarily placed on us. There's three things I want to point out from the passage today. One is how soft legalism enslaves our hearts with pride. Two, how soft legalism makes our repentance superficial. And three, how soft legalism limits our living for God. Enslaves our hearts with pride, makes our repentance superficial, limits our living for God. But pray with me before we enter into our text. Lord, I beg you that this passage will be studied and understood properly in the context that it's in so that we may not take it out of context, getting a different application from what you have intended in through Paul in the Galatian church. And Lord, I beg you that the words said today will not confuse, but rather clarify what you want to say to your people. So thank you for who you are and for this mercy. Let the gospel minister to our hearts and free us that we may live abundantly for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, first point. Soft legalism enslaves our hearts with pride. See, soft legalism, like every other sin, is not ultimately just a mind problem. Soft legalism, like every other sin, is a heart issue. It's a heart problem. 
And Paul, throughout this passage, tries to reveal to the Galatian church, to the Jewish Christians, that um, their logical reasoning has been flawed, has been muddied up, has been confused by the prides that are in their heart. Their hearts want it to be true so badly that their minds try and justify it. And it causes them to make basic contradictory reasonings. All right, let's, let's look how he does this. Look at verse 15 to 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, come back with me and remember that the Jewish Christians were soft legalists, right? They said that your obedience to Christ can somehow make you more lovable, more acceptable to God. And, and what Paul is trying to tell them that, um, guys, you're, t- you're saying that Gentile non-Jewish Christians who are by birth culturally not, don't have as many rules and regulations as we do, they're lesser second-class Christians. And you're saying that if they don't aboy, uh, uh, obey the Jewish Christian rules or the Old Testament laws, they can't hang out with us because they're not as good as us. And, and Paul is saying that's simply self-contradictory. Listen to what Paul is saying. Okay, this is what Paul means in verse 15 to 16. Okay, Paul says, okay, let's use your line of reasoning, soft legalists. Let's say in verse 15 that we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, right? He's being sarcastic here. Let's say that that's true because we somehow obey the Old Testament laws more. We are more spiritual and we're unlike these second class Gentile sinners. Let's say that's true. But yet in verse 16, look at it with me. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. Think, think, follow along with me. The Jewish Christians are saying this, that they're better than the Gentile Christians, but yet they still need the gospel. Think about how contradicting that is. If we who are better than the Gentiles cannot be justified by our works of the law, if we who are better than them need Jesus Christ to be saved, then why would we tell them that they need to be justified by obeying the law? If we're better and we don't have hope, then how can people who are worse than us have hope apart from Christ? It just makes no sense. Why, why are we putting burdens on them that we ourselves cannot fulfill? It, it's, it's like this. It's like the Jewish Christians are professional bodybuilders right? And they have failed to lift a 300 kilogram dumbbell, which is the law of God. It's too heavy for them. And after they failed, they turned to a five-year-old child and said, okay, now you try. And by the way, if you can't, if you can't lift it, you can't hang out with me. How does that make any sense? That's self-contradicting. If you say, if you claim to be better, but yet you cannot fulfill the God's law and you need the gospel, then why, then why would you put that on somebody else who you say is not better than you? Paul is saying, come on, guys. You're smarter than that. That's a very simple contradiction. It's so obvious. Just take a second, think about it, and it'll be clear how ridiculous it is. What Paul is getting at is this. He's using their own argument to defeat themselves. And he's trying to make them think, that's right. 
how did I fall into such an obvious contradiction? And hope to make them think, guys, because this position that you have is not caused out of a reasonable mind, but it's caused and it's been clouded by a prideful heart. Why? Look at verse 15. Why is it so hard for them to break out of this soft legalism? We ourselves are Jews by birth. Think about it. Their whole lives, from the day they were born, their whole worldview has been this. I am more loved by God by how obedient I am. Their whole lives they've been taught and trained. I am more righteous by the level of my personal obedience. I am more accepted by God. I am saved by God by what I do. And I'm less loved by God by my disobedience. Their whole lives, since birth, they've been conditioned to think and trained to think that, that how righteous, how valuable, how lovable they are is dependent upon their success in obeying the Old Testament laws. Their teachers taught it. Their families believed it. Their schools promoted it. Of course, it's hard to break away from that. But let me ask, ask us this. How about us? Did we grow with a similar mindset? Have we been conditioned all our lives and been told that you are more lovable, more acceptable by God by the level of your own personal obedience to his laws? I think a lot of us here, if not all of us, grew up with soft legalism. How long have you thought that you were saved by your own obedience? How long has God's approval and love seemed to come and go based upon our success in obeying his laws? How long has a cloud of guilt been following you around? To this, Paul asks, are you not tired? Are you not tired? I am, because I'm a soft legalist, and I struggle with this every day, and I'm tired. So Paul remedies this in a very interesting way. Look at verse 16 with me. In verse 16, Paul skillfully uses a specific word to make his point about justification. Justification just means being made right before God, being saved, being made righteous. He uses the word justified three times in one sentence. Whenever somebody uses one word in three, three times in a sentence, you probably want to pay attention to it, right? So we're going to briefly get into the grammatical stuff with the word justified. So, so follow along with me because I think it's really important and it'll reveal just how amazing this gospel of Christ really is. Hopefully, it will remedy our soft legalistic hearts. Justified just simply means be made right before God, be declared as innocent, be declared as righteous before God. There are two things I want to stick, I want to point out with the word justified. One is the grammatical tense, follow with me, it'll make sense. One is the grammatical tense, and second is the grammatical voice of the word justified. What is the grammatical tense? If you guys take English class or, or I mean, you guys know what a tense is, right? In grammar, it informs the reader when the action is happening. For example, there's, there's past tense, there's a present tense, there's a future tense. It has been thrown is a past tense. It is being thrown is a present tense. And it will be thrown is a future tense, right? Has been, being, will be. The tense tells us when the action is happening. The second, grammatical voice. The, gra the grammatical voice of a word or a sentence tells you who or what the action is being done to. 
Okay? If the word is written in an active voice, then the action is being done by the object. But if a word is written in the passive voice, an action is being done to the object. Let's, let's go back to the example earlier. It has been thrown. The object is what? It has been thrown. The, act, the, the thing, the object, is being thrown. The object is not doing the throwing. Therefore, it's in the passive. You see what I'm saying? It's not in the active. Active would be the thing doing the throwing. Okay. Now, why did I go through all that? I want us to see how Paul uses the word justify. Okay. Um, grammatically in the Greek, interestingly, Paul uses it each three times in all three tenses. The first time he uses the word justified in verse 16, he does it in the present tense. The second time he uses the word justified in verse 16, he uses it in the past tense. And the third time he uses the word justified in the Greek, he uses it in the future tense. You're justified in the past, you're justified now, and you will be justified in the future. What do you think that tells you about the gospel? What is Paul trying to say? Up against soft legalism. Now when someone's justified in Christ, their justification, it is something that's been applied to their past sins. It is something being applied to their current sins. And it's something that will be applied to their future sins. And how do you know it's an action being done to somebody and not an action that we're supposed to do? Because of the grammatical voice. All three times, guess what voice it's in? The passive. The object is not doing the justification. Justification is being done to the object, to his past sins, to his current sins, and to his future sins forever. Romans 8, 3-4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. What Paul is saying is this. Paul is saying something that Jesus summarized in three short words on the cross. It is finished. It's done. There is no room for pride in this gospel. There is no room to claim that we have earned or somehow made ourselves more lovable to God by how we obey or disobey God's laws. It is finished. Rest. Are you not tired? Now, after hearing a gospel this freeing, this bizarre, it makes us a little bit nervous, doesn't it? There's a sense of discomfort that we might feel. Why? Because our soft legalism is whispering. Oh no, don't buy into such freedom. That's dangerous you're going to end up abusing grace. Don't buy into such freedom because if you believe it, you're going to be lazy and you're going to fall into sin. If the sins we've committed and if the sins that we're currently committing and the sins that we will commit is all forgiven on the cross and it's been fully paid for, then what's going to stop you from sinning? What reason do we have now to repent and obey? Just add a sprinkle of soft legalism in there. Don't make it too freeing, right? which leads us to our second point. That soft legalism actually makes our repentance superficial. At face value, 
sprinkling a little bit of soft legalism into this gospel sounds good, right? It makes us more likely to be more obedient and repent. Because if there's no consequences to disobedience, then what would we be afraid of? What's going to encourage us to repent and, and obey? But Paul here reveals that any sort of repentance and any sort of obedience that is driven by a desire to make ourselves justified, any sort of obedience and repentance that is, that is driven by a desire to make ourselves righteous is actually superficial for two reasons. One, it is guilt-driven, and two, it is externally focused. First one, soft legalistic repentance is guilt-driven. One of the most frequent arguments I hear about Christianity is this. If there's that much freedom, then what's going to stop me from sinning? you got to put some kind of law, right? you got to put some kind of requirements on, 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 on the person. The gospel just cannot be this freeing. And Paul sees this and addresses the Jewish Christians who had the similar thought in verse 17 to 18. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Think about this for a second. I thought you just said that justification in Christ is fully done by Christ on the cross, and we don't have to add anything to it. I thought you just said that justification in Christ is something that we need to be fully passive and rest under. So what is Paul saying? Endeavor to be justified in Christ. Doesn't endeavor imply a working connotation? How does somebody endeavor to rest and justify it in Christ? Isn't it supposed to be restful? Yes, it is. But for soft legalists, to rest is often really hard, isn't it? We want to do and do and do and work and work and work and add to our righteousness and make sure that we're saved and make sure that we're lovable and make sure that we're good enough. To simply rest is a huge endeavor for the soft legalist. It's like, for example, you know, I don't know if you've ever felt this, but, you know, you, you, you don't get in the Word one day. You don't read the Bible. And you say to yourself, man, I, I didn't read the Bible today. I could have, but I didn't. And I feel convicted about it. But weirdly enough, I don't feel as guilty as I used to about it. I'm convicted, but I'm not so guilt-driven. I'm resting a little bit more. Oh, no. Am I abusing grace? Am I becoming numb to my sin? Or another example is, man, I... I should, have, I should have shared the gospel to somebody. I could have. This guy asked me about the gospel, and I just I didn't share with him. I just kind of neglected it. I'm convicted about it, and I should have shared with him, and next time I want to do better. But I'm not that broken. Like, I'm broken about it, but I'm not that guilt-ridden like I used to be about it. Oh, no. Am I abusing grace? Am I falling into sin? Am I becoming numb to my own sin? Yes, there is a possibility that as you grow in your rest in Christ that you can abuse grace, of course. But more than likely, for the soft legalist, feeling less guilty about their sin is actually a movement towards health. Because starting to be able to differentiate between conviction and guilt is key in how we repent properly. Conviction is Christ-centered sadness. It is something our heart feels when we have broken his commandments. Yes, uh, we feel sad. Yes, we're convicted, but we never feel less love. We never feel condemning. And there's a sense of rest even in our failures. Guilt, on the other hand, is self-absorbed despair. It makes us think that somehow our sin has 
made us less lovable and acceptable by God. To use a biblical story as an example, let's use the story of Peter and Judas. Okay, you guys know these stories. I don't need to repeat it to you, but let's just use it. When people think of someone who betrayed Jesus, who do they think of? Judas, right? Actually, Peter betrayed Jesus too. Did we forget that? In Luke chapter 22. You know the story. When Jesus was being about to be crucified, he was, he was, uh, the, the Pharisees kind of had him in a little court uh, uh, session, and people were saying, oh, that's Peter. That's one of his disciples. I know him. What did he say? I, I don't know Jesus. I, I, that's, I don't know him. And then it happened three times. Thus, Peter disobeyed Jesus. I mean, abandoned Jesus, betrayed Jesus like Judas did. But think about what happened to these two people. They both committed the same sin, but one led to suicide, and the second, what happened to him? In Matthew 27, Judas killed himself. Self-absorbed with guilt, he killed himself. But Peter, because he had Christ-centered conviction in John 27, ran straight back to Jesus. Let's fast forward three days, or a few days. John 21, we see Peter fishing with the rest of the disciples. And all of a sudden, you see Jesus appear on the shore. And someone said, John 21, verse 7, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. After betraying Jesus, Judas, with self-absorbed guilt, killed himself. Peter, after committing the same exact sin, with Christ-centered conviction, led him straight back to Christ. It's not that Peter wasn't broken about it. Luke 22, verse 62 says that Peter wept bitterly, but his conviction never led him to self-condemnation. His conviction never led him to despair. It actually magnified the love of Christ. My goodness, I'm such a sinner, but he loves me still. He died for me still. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross. Judas' self-absorbed guilt led him to death. Peter's Christ-centered conviction threw him back to the arms of Christ. And you know what happens when a soft legalist starts to grow in the gospel? And you know what happens when their guilt turns into conviction? They rest. They rest a little more. You never get to a point where you doubt his love for you and where you condemn yourself. So first, soft legalism makes our repentance superficial because it is self-absorbed and not Christ-centered. Second, soft legalism, the repentance is superficial because it is externally focused. Follow me in verse 17. Um, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. We're found to be sinners. This phrase Paul used because he was combating the Jewish Christians who called him a sinner. Why do you think the Jewish Christians was calling Paul a sinner? Who did he hang out with? The Gentile Christians, right? And verse 15, we just saw that they called the Gentile Christians second kind of rape Christians lesser than them. He's saying, if in my endeavor to be justified in Christ, I, 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 um, I'm called to be a sinner because I'm hanging out with people that you call sinful, that's, that's very shallow, isn't it? Our, our repentance is very externally focused. The Jewish Christians do and do and do and work and work and work at serve in church and serve in church and, and memorize scripture and read the Bible and pray and do all these things. Externally, they look righteous, but internally, they're filled with pride. They're saying, I'm better than these Gentile Christians who are not serving at church. I'm better than these Gentile Christians who are not giving as much as I am in church. I'm better than these Gentile Christians for A, B, C, D. It's, it's, it's superficial because it's self-absorbed and it's shallow. It's only external. 
reminds me of what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, they feel like submitting under the Old Testament law can somehow make them better, more lovable, more valuable Christians. Paul is saying that's ironic. It's actually the opposite. We think that sprinkling a bit of soft legalism into this gospel of freedom can make us more righteous. Actually, the opposite. Look at verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Think about it for a second. What did Paul tear down? The false gospel, right? The gospel that says, the false gospel that says any kind of justification can be earned by our own righteousness. Paul tore that down. He said that's false. That's not true. And he's saying if he rebuilds that, he's going to be even a worse sinner. Why? Because can you really fulfill God's commandments? If you say that righteousness can be earned by your own um, obedience to God's law, it, let, let's go back to that, okay? That we can be saved by God's law, being obedient to God's laws. Can you, can you really do that? It'll actually prove to you that you're more sinful because now we have standards upon yourself that you can never fulfill. Think about it. Can we really never be jealous of our neighbors? Tenth commandment. Can we really always guard, guard our hearts from lust? Seventh commandment. Can we really never be sinfully angry towards someone else? Sixth commandment. Can we really say that we'll never worship money, success, comfort, and popularity above God? First commandment. Really? You want to be try to be justified by the law? Go ahead. Do that. You, you try. It'll tell you that it'll only lead to death. There's no way you can do that. So, We've covered a lot. Let's summarize. Paul combats soft legalism by saying, you cannot try and earn your own righteousness because if you do, it will enslave your hearts with pride. It'll make you feel more prideful, better than others. Second, it'll make your repentance guilt-driven and self-absorbed and externally focused. It doesn't work. So before we move on to our last point, we've heard that the law is good or bad. The law seems like it's bad, right? But now, interestingly, in verse 19, Paul changes his tone. This whole time he's saying the law is bad, the law enslaves, the law puts you to death. But now he switches gears. Look at verse 19 with me. For through the law, I died through the law, so that I might live to God. This is important. Here we see that the law is not all bad. God's laws are good. But it's only good if it's used in the way that God intended it to be used. Okay? God's intended way of the law is that when we see it, it should make us say, I don't want to say the word, but like, oh man, <laughs> um, I can't do that. That's, that's crazy requirements. Really? I can never, no one can ever do that. And that reaction should lead us to death. And at this point of death, only at this point of death can we really live for God. How so? Let's go to our last point. Soft legalism limits our living for God. All throughout the scripture, breaking God's law is a personal offense against a holy God. 
and it's been described as a few ways. Two of them is that we're challenging God in his authority, right? We're challenging the rightful king in his position to decide what is good and what is bad. And we say, no, 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 I'm going to disobey you. I'm going to make my own rules of what's good and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, and I'm going to be the God. I'm going to be the king. That's one way. Another way to describe it is that we're cheating on God. It's more of an emotional side of it, right? We're saying, God, you're not good enough. I'm going to worship and find pleasure in other things apart from you. If your husband or wife or girlfriend or boyfriend ever did that to you, your wrath would be unimaginable. Thus is God's. You're not enough for me. I will worship other things and love and serve them more than you. We don't take this lightly. Offending an eternal God, a holy and righteous God, is a big deal. And this is why Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. And Romans 3.23 says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, Jews, Gentiles, whatever race you're at, however much money you have, whatever clothes you wear, whatever car you drive, there is no distinction. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, if everyone has sinned, and if everyone deserves death, how does that work for the Christian? We die too. We do. Don't be so quick to say that Christians don't die in our sin. We do. But it is at this point where Paul brushes briefly on a very significant doctrine in Scripture in verse 20. This is very significant. And it's the doctrine of our union with Christ. Stay with me. Calvin says, this doctrine has the highest degree of importance if we are to understand justification properly, correctly. All right, look at verse 20 with me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Look at the middle of the verse, very important phrase. Christ lives in me. Throughout the New Testament, we see this concept a few times. Christ being in a believer and a believer, believer being in Christ. Let's just look at a few passages, okay? This is still under the category of union with Christ, our believer's union in Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall be made alive, shall all be made alive. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Now let's look at some verses to talk about Christ being in us. Ephesians 3. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Romans 8. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, this is a bit of a mystery in the Christian faith, but there is this, this union with the believer and with Christ in which when I receive what he has done for me on the cross by faith, I'm in him and he is in me. Just to summarize, what it's, what it's pretty much saying is this. Paul said, based on the law, we have all failed and we deserve death. When a Christian is united with Christ, our sins are in a very real way put upon Christ. Our sins, the wrongs we have done in a very real way was put on Christ. That's why he was crucified, for our sins, for our mistakes that we've done. But in the same sense, Jesus' death on the cross, in a very real way, was applied to us as well. 
we have died with Christ. Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Now, connected to Paul's previous argument, he's saying, go ahead, obey the law. Do it. Find your righteousness by obeying the law. Go ahead. Here's 10. There's actually a lot more, but just take 10 and see if you can fulfill it. If you do that really, honestly, with integrity, you're going to realize that you can't do it, and it's going to lead you to death. And when you realize that you deserve death, only in that realization can the gospel be clear to you. Because there has been somebody who died in your place for you. I have died with Christ. I have died in Christ. So obviously, Paul's still alive. Obviously, we're still alive after we receive Christ as the Lord and Savior. So who, who died? Who's this person that died in Christ? Well, it's the old self. We read a verse earlier, 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. Who is this old self? It's the person who's been weighed down by their sins their whole lives. It's this person whose righteousness and standing before God has been dependent upon how obedient they have been to God's laws. It's this person whose identity has been haunted by shame if they look at their past. It's this person who can barely come to church because stepping on those doors reminds them of how guilty their lives are. It's this person who has failed to live righteously and deserves to die. This person has died. He has been crucified with Christ, and he or she no longer lives. So who now lives? Paul says, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a new creation. You're free. How much God loves you, how righteous you are, how justified you are, is no longer dependent upon how much you're able to obey God's laws. Because Christ has fulfilled that and has died for that person. You are free in Christ. So what happens when this new person falls into sin? Yes, he's convicted of sin or she's convicted of sin, but never again fall to guilt. Because his justification, his made rightness before God is no longer dependent on his obedience. He's convicted, he's sad that he's offended his heavenly father. But it never makes him think that Jesus' blood was not enough for him. How does this new creation, how does this new person repent? Not guilt-driven, but Christ-centered. Not only externally, but deeply, because his repentance isn't a way to get more spiritual points. But it's driven by a newfound love he has with the Heavenly Father. How does this person decide who to fellowship with? Not pridefully, but humbly. Never counting himself better than others. He is merely a sinner saved by faith. How does this new person live their lives? They live fully to God. Because their obedience is not limited by whether or not they feel spiritual enough that day. Their obedience is not limited by how saved they feel that particular day. Their obedience is not limited by how good they feel about themselves. Their obedience is driven by the fact that they have been made perfectly righteous in Christ. Their obedience is, is, is defined by what Christ has done for their past, current, and future sins. You see, people think sprinkling a bit of soft legalism to gospel freedom makes us more obedient. It doesn't. Think about it. 
if our obedience, if our just, if, if our obedience um, um, determines how justified we are, if how much God loves us is dependent upon how much we do, then there's a limit to our obedience, right? The limit is this, whatever point we feel like is enough for salvation. If our salvation earns my righteousness, the limit is whatever point I feel like I'm righteous enough to get into God's kingdom. There's a limit. Soft legalism puts a limit to our righteousness. But on the cross, it blows that limit away. We don't obey God to a point where it's enough. We're not doing it to be enough. We're doing it because his death on the cross will always be enough for us. See, gospel-centered repentance, gospel-centered obedience is limitless, but it's also restful. This obedience is boundless, but it's very peaceful. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let me end with a story of a missionary. Uh, his name's John Patton. Uh, some of you might have heard him. But this guy wanted to minister to a place where it's very dangerous to minister the gospel in. And as he traveled to that place by sea, uh, the captain of the boat knew what he was wanting to do and warned him. He went to him and said, John, you know that if you do this, like you, you might, you're probably going to die. John Pan was silent. And the captain felt an obligation to warn this brother of his and said again, John, you probably didn't hear me or you're probably like not right in the head or something. But if you continue to do this, you're going to probably die. And to that, John Patton responded, Good sir, I died a long time ago. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but he who lives in me. Now, I'm not saying you have to quit your jobs and become missionaries, okay? It's not what this text is saying. But it does beg the question, have we been crucified with Christ? Have we allowed him to carry the guilt that's been on your shoulders for way too long? Have we given him whatever shortcomings and shame we might have that's been weighing us down? Has this old self been crucified? And are we now in that restful state of forgiveness, moving forward, being obedient to him without limit, not based on guilt, not based on fear, not based on shame, not based on earning spiritual points, but by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Let's pray. Father, what a gospel we have in Christ. That you, a holy, righteous God, would die for those who daily offend you and challenge your place as rightful king. That you, an eternal God, would die for those who daily cheat on you and call you not enough. That your justice might be fulfilled. That sin may still be accounted for, but by yourself, as you have paid the ransom for those whom you love. 
take away any sprinkle of hard or soft legalism we might have in our lives. And Lord, let us receive and accept this mercy that we may be obedient, we may repent, we may live with full accord, limitless, boundless, but restful and peaceful. 